to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. On this episode, my close friend, Carol Zoe, visited me in Berlin, and I was overjoyed to finally chat with Carol. I have known Carol since her time in undergrad and seen her develop over the years into a formidable artist, activist, and cultural worker. She is always reading and writing on top of her work, and I always marvel at how Carol can juggle everything at once. For the interview, we discussed the economics of social practice, historical discontinuity in places, the performative dimensions of activism, and constructing mythologies. We are both drinking tea, so you may hear the occasional slurping. I don't think I could adequately summarize Carol's practice, so I'll read from Carol's self-mythologized description from her website bio. When Carol Zoe was growing up in subsidized university housing as a child of first-generation Chinese immigrants, she read The Fledgling by Jane Langton and convinced the rest of the children in the apartment complex that if they practice hard enough, they could collectively learn how to fly. She is still learning how to mobilize collective action around public space, imagination, and liberation from structural oppression. And with that, I hope you enjoy this. Could you get closer? Your voice is so soft. Uh, okay, okay. All right. Is this better? Yeah, that's better. Okay, cool. All right. Um, I know. I'm usually so loud, too. Well, you've had a long day. I think it's been a long trip with sleep lags or, yeah, jet lag and all that. Sleep lags, that's a good one. And um, emotional highs and lows. Yeah. Yesterday, going from a concentration camp to the Kit Kat Club, you know, just an emotional roller coaster right there. Mm. I guess you would have to end your day in a Kit Kat Club after going to concentration camp, right? Do you think that's how Germans just get it all out of their system, you know? They're just like, Maybe. every single day we're reminded that we're terrible people and Nazis. So, yeah. Time to go have some freaky sex. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well. Speaking of freaky sex. Um, what? No, I, I said, like, I, I was being sarcastic. Oh, I was like, I thought you were looking at that postcard, and I was like, I don't think that postcard references freaky sex. I was like, maybe I misread it. <laughs> uh, you're like, actually, sunshine is a euphemism. No, but you got this from Palais de Tokyo? Yeah. Oh, okay. By Laura Proust. She's like, I think a... A provost? I think she's like a British artist. When were you at um, Palais de Tokyo? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. I got this at Hamburger Bahnhof. They had the, uh, they, they probably had a show of hers that traveled to Hamburger Bahnhof. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ideally, it. here some sunshine would touch uh, your face. Minimalist sentiment. That's uh, your vibe. That's yeah? That's your hashtag aesthetic. All right. Yeah. Minimalist sentiment. Minimalist sentiment? Yes. All right. <sighs> okay, well, all right. Uh, so I am right now with Carozo, and we're in Berlin somehow, both of us. Yep. Um, I first met 
Carol. I feel like we kept just seeing each other in, like, passing each other in the classes of Jaden, or like in the libraries of Cornell. And then like we talk like for five minutes, and then we leave, and then it would just keep happening. I feel like. No, I have a very specific oh, memory of when was we I an met. asshole? Yeah, okay. I, I was like, I have a very specific memory of when we I met. I said bad first so, impressions. Um, yeah, I guess this is rude that you don't remember the genesis of our friendship. All right, um, just pile it on. So no, 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 no. I remember that drawing two hundred one and drawing one hundred one, or what, whatever the equivalent, right? The first and second year equivalent. We're in the same studio, so I think one day I came during an off hour to finish up a drawing,、mm-hmm. and so you were there、um, the same time, and we started talking.、Mm-hmm. And this is how nutty I am.、What? Like I remember the things that I'm wearing during certain moments in my life. So I know that my hair was bleached. And like a little bit faded pink,、mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure I was wearing a red T-shirt that had a joke about communism on it. It was like, is this in your diary? Do it yourself. That, is this in your diary? No, this is the type of memory I have.、Oh, okay. I remember that sometimes, not all the time, yeah. But sometimes I remember the outfits that I'm wearing. What do we talk about? Because they're great outfits.、Um, <laughs> So I think we just talked about drawing. Oh, it was because I had drawing with Renee Farrow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so I think you were trying. Had you had her for drawing class? I forget. I forget if I was talking to you based on、uh, word of mouth or I had already had her. Okay. I did.、Yeah. I did eventually have her. Okay, got it. For electronic imaging. No, thank、oh, God. Just,、uh, no. Yeah. I had her for drawing. Yeah, it's just as bad. Still. Yeah. Um. So yeah, yeah, and we just started talking, and I think because you. Were a year ahead of me. You were just giving me some lay of the land advice. Did I give it un unasked、um, for advice? Probably. <laughs> yeah. I sometimes do that. And I don't know why you were there. Probably you were working on a project too or something. And then didn't you just work in the building? Didn't you start working? Like, I was like a your second year or third. I forget. I was like in the print lab. The 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 I I was a tech okay tech. Person for the large format printing. All right, so then I just saw you all the time. Saw you at parties, you know. Saw you around. Blah blah. I feel blah, like we didn't see you that many times at parties. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's I think that's probably my fault, but because I don't because、no. you went to a lot of like art parties and you go to parties like Marcel. Oh yeah. I would mostly party with like the the A zero group and like the Asian crowd. I mean, I had Asian friends. No, I know, I know. We just stayed inside and played cards.、Yeah. They weren't, <laughs> they or or video games. They weren't a parting. You play video games? Yeah. Oh my god. So like, this was the way my life was split,、uh-huh. which actually is a good segue into how race shapes or does not shape your cultural identity as an artist, right? Because I had my art friends and my Asian friends. Yeah. They didn't overlap. Yeah. They were two different groups. You、yeah. know why? Because my art friends were like white. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Or culturally white. Sorry, Bianca. But either way, you culturally know. Culturally white, white passing, um, <sighs> some, form of, some form of privilege, unaware of whiteness. I, I think maybe uh, like, yeah, not being able to discourse about whiteness mm-hmm, yeah. is the most generous way that I would put it. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had art friends and I had Asian friends. Yeah. And so Friday night would be Asian friend night. An Asian friend night consisted (laughs) of going into College Town, Uh eating at one of the Asian restaurants, Uh getting someone over 21 to buy cheap alcohol. Vodka, right? Yeah. Doing shots of that alcohol. Oh, my God. Like, yeah, watermelon vodka. So bad. I'm doing shots of that alcohol in the main room of a dorm while playing Mario Kart. I was about to say Mario Party. These well, yeah, Mario Party too, but I find Mario Kart to be way more exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the Mario Kart races would get really wild. Yeah, and then Saturday was art friend time. art friend yeah. time. So yeah. that was the go to the party with a bunch of disaffected white hipsters who are all like having sex with each other, but. It just feels weird because I'm like, none of y'all are fucking attractive. Sorry, not sorry. And, you know, pass around a joint and drink a lot because you're not having sex with a white hipster. That was my weekend. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think every Asian or any, every minority who functions in a white space has that similar experience of like having a completely different group of friends. Yeah, you know, splitting things like um, I'm not sure if it's more prevalent in Asian Americans. I only say that because I saw an Onion article, and I've said this before, but I've, I've seen an Onion article like a while back. It was like white person discovers that their Asian friend has a whole different group oh. of Asian friends who yes. they were not aware of. Yes, you know? I have seen that article too. But I will say that now in my life, I've intentionally been able to build a bubble of really amazing artistic activist friends asian art activists art friends yeah asian but also um just people of color that's like three a's asian art art, activist art yeah (laughs) activist asian artist friends yeah (laughs) yeah and it's really amazing to know them but then i also feel like the dynamic is a little bit different with Asian non-artist friends, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Where when you're an artist or when you're an activist, you're still talking about the same concepts and ideas and like things that you're doing. But then with other Asians, yeah, I always felt very alienated because everyone was studying to be, you know, it's the classic story. Everyone's studying to be a doctor, engineer, lawyer, did not understand why I was studying art at an Ivy League, right? Um, How do you feel about, I'm mixed about this, how do you feel about the whole Harvard thing giving Asians like a lower personality score? Wait, Harvard? Yeah. You know about this, right? I know about this. This is just where I start to put on my politically correct hat and try to think (laughs) through all the racial implications because I think that that narrative is used to, you know, like deny entry Mm -hmm. to black and brown students from marginalized backgrounds and to drive a racial wedge between Asian Americans Mm -hmm. and other people of color. And so I don't really enjoy that whole, you know, Harvard 
um, is screwing over their Asian students stereotype. Yeah. Um, do I, I think stereotype, do I think that stereotype exists and is an unfair stereotype? Yeah, probably. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. when I read that, I was like, I remember just feeling mixed cause I was like, that's wrong. But I sometimes feel that is true, mm. you know? And like, we were just talking like most of our Asian friends, we, us personally don't have as much to talk about, right? We seem to, we, we, we created that separation of like white art hipster friends and then like. But I mean, I don't think white art hipster friends have much to talk about either. You know, I actually, yeah. the reason that I have my bubble right now is because I find um, white cultural producers to be really shallow in the content mm. that they address in their work. Yeah. To me, it's just uninteresting and superficial. And I don't think these people have real problems. Yeah. Personally. Um, you know, so I think maybe the question, like the affirmative action question is, it's like, okay, maybe there's a problem of Asian Americans not exhibiting, or I, I don't know. I'm like trying to figure out how to put it. Um, I I, like, no, how, how about this? Yeah. Asian Americans are held to a different standard than white students. That should be that's true. the conver- affirmative action yeah. conversation, right? The affirmative action conversation should not be Asian Americans are held to a different standard than marginalized black and brown students. Yeah. So, for example, I don't think white people are that interesting yeah. either, right? And so, yeah, maybe you could say, oh, Harvard's like being discriminatory because they don't think Asian American students or applicants are interesting. But the problem is that they're letting in these like equally really, yeah. uninteresting and mediocre white people. Yeah, That's from, the from real pe- problem. From prep schools. Yep, 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 yep. Thank you, Ivy League. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, that was a long discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess, I'm, I don't know. I have I have so many things I want to talk about. We don't have that much time because uh, I feel like we've been talking, like you said, we were, we've been talking the past two and a half days and like that is basically, that was basically our podcast. Yes, um, extended discourse. Yeah, so I don't know. I guess do you want to talk about growing up in Texas, how you got into art, how you then moved to LA, and then somehow got into Otis. And I'm curious. I feel like your trajectory was not one I had imagined, and also not one that I feel like I, it's the one that I understand, but also feel like you're doing so much that I'm also not sure what I'm looking at. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, in a, and I mean that in a positive way. So my personal myth-making... Oh. Yes. I I think everyone myth-makes about themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, let's, do, let's, do, let's go there. Yes, let's go there. So my personal myth-making is that my family um, immigrated to the United States when I was two, So we're immigrant or first generation, depending on how you define it. And so when I grew up, my mom worked in a factory to help make ends meet. We didn't have a lot of money. And so uh, there's this moment in the myth making that I always talk about, which is we are assigned a science fair project in second grade and Mm -hmm. everyone else 
has their parents to they help get. them yeah. with the science fair mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they have their parents available to buy them stuff mm-hmm. that they can like experiment on. Yep. And so I didn't have either of those things. Like I didn't have parents who believed in buying school supplies and I didn't have parents who were available to help me because they were working. And so they, they said, well, you can just do a research project. And so I guess my like teeth were falling out at the time. So I decided to research the way that like teeth grew and do a presentation on it. But like, instead of asking my parents to buy the trifold science display boards, um, I just made my display board out of like cardboard Mm -hmm. that I found in the garbage (laughs) (laughs) and painted over because like you cared about how it looked. Yeah. Because I cared about how it looked. And so of course, compared to everyone else's science project, it was a total failure as a project. Mm -hmm. But the feedback that I got was, well, it looked nice. Um, (laughs) And so I think that was when like, it looked nice, like not derogatory, just like it was, you did a good job. It looked nice. Yes, like I painted, I distinctly remember, I had these like big purple letters Uh um, with like green and yellow dots on them that said growing teeth (laughs) on (laughs) recycled cardboard background. And, you know, at that time, I think I had grown up with, you know, my mom would make all of my clothes because she didn't have the income to buy the clothes. And so I think I just understood that I was surrounded with those values of creativity and that maybe I self-identified with that a lot more than I did with like science. You thought all of this in second grade. I was a very deep kid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's important to be able to like retrospectively Mm -hmm. unpack these formative experiences, right? Um, So let's see, fast forward, Growing up in Texas, we moved around, ended up in Texas. Um, oh, like you moved around besides Texas? Outside. Yes. Okay. okay. Um, we ended up in Texas. I was probably one of five Asian Americans. Yeah. Um, I think I was like one of like three. Yeah. In my high school. And also I went to public school yeah. in suburban Texas. And so it's not like our art classes were the shit. Right. In fact, um, art class, there was art and then there were the kids who didn't pick an elective when they signed up for classes. So they put those kids in in art class. Mm -hmm. So those kids did not care about art class. And there was this guy who I think looking back, maybe he struggled with some like mental health issues, but he would like steal my color. He would steal my color pencils. He was like a fucking bully. (laughs) (laughs) He's doing it accidentally, purposefully? No, I think he was acting out a lot of like anger and inability to socialize. Mm. Um, So he would steal my colored pencils, right, while I was just in art class trying to do my thing. But I had um, an art teacher that was very supportive. And even though I had such a like standard, like self-taught art education, like I was checking out books from the library on Botticelli, you know, like that kind of crap that you learn about before you learn about the good stuff. Yeah. He actually, he like showed me Judy Chicago's dinner table. I 
or a dinner party. I didn't understand it whatsoever. I don't remember any right? of the art that was shown to me then, other than like the famous ones. But yeah. Oh really? Like, I just, like I like I was taught like Van Gogh, Matisse. Like, nothing as radical as Julie Chicago. No, it's because I was making these silly paintings that were, you know, like, yeah, Cubist-inspired, Mm post-Impressionist paintings. And I felt like I had really hit a wall with that. And so that's when he tried to introduce me to Judy Chicago, Mm. which I was like, what the fuck? You know, and so that was the art background that I came from, which I'm not going to lie. I fantasize all the time about what it's like to come from a family of artists, to be going to contemporary art openings from the time that you're five which like some of my artist friends that's what they do with their kids you know to go to special art high schools Mm -hmm. where your idea of art is not like Botticelli (laughs) right where you have like a little bit more contemporary understanding of art because when I got to art school I felt so horribly behind really yeah I felt like I knew this. I knew I could draw. Maybe you were smarter than me because I felt like I was okay and all I knew to do was draw and paint. I knew how to draw really well. (laughs) Yeah. Like I was good at drawing, but I was amongst kids who came from private art schools, who did after school art programs, who won art competitions. And I just thought, what the fuck? I'm so confused. Yeah. You know, I was like, I have never developed a darkroom photo in my life. How do people have these experiences? Like, I just don't understand. Yeah. So anyway, Cornell happened. We can talk about it. I personally find it to be an incredibly alienating place that was only good for its intellectual resources and your ability to understand and both disdain the 1% through being in proximity to them. Um, I feel like, yeah, I, f- I feel the same way. I feel like I got more out of my, uh, everything that happened after Cornell. I mean, yeah. I do have to say, I do think like that degree probably helped me more in terms of like just getting jobs that, I mean, people always commented. It was like, oh, you went to Cornell. Like, yeah. like it wasn't, you know, and it was like, they recognized what it was, you yeah. know, and it could, it definitely didn't hurt me in that way. And it, I think it helped like when I was getting jobs in LA, you know, freelancing. But it helps you get real life jobs. Yes. It doesn't help you in the art world. No. No one in the art world gives a no. shit that you went to Cornell. No. Sorry. <laughs> Although no one really cares where you went to undergrad. I think. Okay. No, but I think if you go to a top tier art school for undergrad, you can skate by without a master's, right? I've seen people launch directly from a UCLA or a Cal Arts, yeah, mm. into a full-fledged art career mm. who did not need that MFA time. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's also something else. So anyway, blah, 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 Cornell, after, yeah. after four years Privilege. of, <sighs> yes, being around the 1% in sub-zero temperatures, I decided that I wanted to be somewhere warm um, and somewhere where I could be part of an art community. So I knew that meant not going back to Texas because there really wasn't an art community. And so for me, if a lot of people were working in New York City. Your parents were in Houston? They were in Austin. Austin. 
Yeah. They, they, they've been there since. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people were moving to New York City, and I just really didn't want to do that scene. And so I moved out to L.A. Yeah, it was... You fell in love. No, let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know we all have a love-hate relationship with L.A. Oh, I thought you meant like a person love. I was oh, like, let's not, let's, no. let's not talk about that one. Um, I moved Sorry, out I to L.A. To That's all right. Um, actually, the first two years were rough. Yeah, no, I remember you told me it took you two years and then, but then when I, that's when I arrived and you're like, LA's the shit. I love LA. I remember that. I remember that. But I remember you telling me it took you two years. Yes. LA kicked my ass. The first year I was stressed out. I didn't know, like I was worried about finding jobs. I was worried about paying rent. Mm-hmm. Um, I was driving all the time, which was God. really stressful. Yeah. I racked up $500 in parking tickets. And I think between working two jobs, I probably made 30000 a year tops. Yeah. Like working two jobs at over 50 hours a week. You were living in Silver Lake, right? Uh, yes, I was living, so I was originally living in North Hollywood and then I was living in Los Feliz and then I was working two jobs that were kind of arty. Um, one of which I think continues to reverberate through my life, even though, which one? um, so I was working as a graphic designer at a record label. I I thought it was so cool. Um, you invited me to like an album release for, I forgot who. Oh, I forgot. I think the singer was from Yale. Oh, Rishi. Okay. Rishi's really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Rishi also makes his own podcasts now, by the way. He makes Song Exploder and the West Wing Weekly. And so it's a testament to just my general podcasting habit that like I can't even, I mean, I've listened to Song Exploder episodes, but I don't like, I I just don't receive information. Yeah. We just, Carol, Carol prefers reading, which is also uh, very honorable. No, um, don't tell my friends I don't listen to their podcasts religiously, please. Uh, Carol won't listen to this, don't worry. (laughs) Um, That's right, you you like it on Instagram, so that's fine. Yes, see, visual, visual information. At Seeing Color Pod at Instagram. Yes, Um, so I was working at a record label, I thought I was so cool, and then I was working at an art center for teens in East LA Mm -hmm. that was funded through a gang intervention grant and located in the basement of a violence intervention program. What is a gang intervention grant? Um, So I'm not going to lie. I wasn't fully aware of the politics of this grant. And I feel like some like advocates might not be 100% behind this. I fully acknowledge that. And that's something that I still feel a little bit in the dark about to this day. Um, But it was through a program called Gang Reduction and Youth Development. And so they kind of had two stages. One was intervention and one was prevention. And we had a prevention contract. So what that meant was that our center was founded on the premise that, you know, if we founded a safe space for teens, And if we like did the screening for teens who exhibited like risk factors for being in gangs, I think that's the part that's controversial, right? Is like Like how do you determine that? Yeah, Yeah, like pre-screening people for these risk factors. But that if we could create a safe space, then that would be a like way to prevent, you know, entering into gangs and gang violence. 
And so, I mean, I think that I didn't have the vocabulary at that time to really articulate what I was doing as art. Like, I just felt like I wasn't like an artist with a capital A yeah. um, with either of those jobs. Right. But I think that working at the Santana house, because my director, um, she didn't have a background in the arts. She actually came over from working in public health mm-hmm. and on like women's issues and domestic violence issues. And there were social workers on staff. And so I think just like being in that type of hybrid arts and social services organization. Yeah, it was I still do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I think that was really formative in ways that I probably didn't understand were formative. Generally, I don't think that, like, in retrospect, I don't think I was very together in my early 20s. Is (laughs) anyone? Or had a lot of self-awareness about what I was doing with my life. Yeah. 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 Oh, and then I'm supposed to get to Otis, right? Okay. Oh, before Otis, you, you were yard bombing. Yes. Okay. Oh, well, then I came, and then that's when you started. I think both of us were, were trying to get back into art. Mm. We took a class with S.A. Bachman. Oh, shoot. We should call S.A. Anyway. Yeah. Um, um, uh, shout out to S.A. Bachman. Shout but, out to S.A. <laughs> But yeah, so we took we took like a like a basically a socially engaged art class about revolving around LA, and yeah. I think that was like I think we both were like okay, like we've been out of school for a little bit, maybe we can try art again. I think we were both like dipping our. I remember for me at least, I was dipping my toes back into art and talking about art, thinking about art, doing art. Yeah, because you had come I, back from Korea. Yeah, and I had, I had done about yeah, and yeah, and I just started working. Mm-hmm. I just started doing yeah. web development. I remember I was taking Tuesdays off mm-hmm. from Glendale. Oh, I was, yeah, because that's yeah. where my first uh, web development job was in Glendale. And yeah. Yeah. No, that's... So yeah, I think... Um, so another part of the myth-making or time marker, one is um, the Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. And the octopus. So, yeah, Building the octopus with Janet and her husband Matt. Was it Janet? Janet Briggs? Owen Driggs. Driggs. Owen Driggs. And Matt o- Owen Driggs. And I always say that that experience was just so transformative. Because, Can you quickly describe it? Okay. Let's see. A couple of things had happened around. Okay. Okay. So yeah, a couple of things happened around the same time. So one was my one of my former employers, who was a photographer I had interned for. He forwarded me this call for art called Chain Letter, which was basically you were invited to put your art in the show. Oh, yeah, Michael. Yes. Michael. I was, Mike, yeah, I was in that. Yeah, Michael DeHaan. But you had to forward it to like 10 different other people. Yeah. And so the day of, there was this epic, it was a social experiment, right? There was this like epic, epic, epic line of people just like lined up to like dump their art in the gallery. And the gallery just became an art dump of like 700 artists trying to show their work. The piece I made was so bad. Yeah. (laughs) Mine was like, took up a lot of space. Anyway, I'm like, don't like, don't like to think about it. Don't like to talk about it. I've locked it out of my memory. (laughs) But at that time, I 
ended up meeting Darlin' Susan Yee, uh-huh. who was a fiber artist having an opening in that same compound, Bergamo mm. Station. And when I looked on her website, it said she was part of the Yarn Bombers. And I wrote her and I said, that's really cool. And she's like, yeah, you should join our Facebook group, come to our next meeting. So I did. And while I was joining the Facebook group, there was a woman who posted in the Facebook group about Occupy LA and said, hey, Mm. like come down to Occupy LA. This is what's up. And, you know, we're constructing, we had an artist meeting. There's an artist contingent. We're constructing this giant octopus puppet. And so I thought, okay, yeah, this is me. I was like mildly interested in the Occupy movement. I wasn't really sure what it was about. So I went down and that was when I met Janet, who was this woman who was teaching at USC at the time. And she was constructing this giant 30 foot octopus puppet to be used as a symbol of corporate greed based on these old drawings from workers organizing, I think in the 1930s or the turn of the century. And so, yeah, for weeks I came down I helped her build that puppet. Um, We puppeted it on the steps of City Hall in the rain. We also puppeted it in the Rose Parade, which is how I met James Rojas, who is Mm. a participatory urban planner, as well as another friend, Frederick Portillo. You know, and so it was just through all of these. And at that time, I also regularly attended yarn bombing meetings. Um, And so it was just through all of these encounters that I started to become part of an artistic community, but it was very unexpected and surprising and something. So when I left LA a few years later, Janet actually hosted a going away dinner for me at her house and everyone had to go around and like talk about how they met me because I was invited to that. Did you go? Yeah. Were you still in LA at that time? Yeah. Well, but did you, you never had a going away party because you went to Otis. That wasn't really going away, right? No. So I had a going away party when I graduated Otis. Oh, no. There's that random time. This is a complete detour. But while we were, I think both, or I was still in a master's, I went to LA and I remember I was like, I think on Twitter, I was like, Uh, what, like, hey, La La Land, what's good? And you're uh, like on Twitter, like... Janice throwing me a party, come. Uh, and then she did the exact same thing because it's a party for you. Mm-hmm. And she did the same thing. I was like, hey, how did everyone, how does everyone know Carol at the beginning of this party? Oh. So she did it twice then. No, she only did one party. So no, that but, was the party that, that the, you went to. But that, yeah, how do you know Carol? Yeah. And so. It, oh, was that the going away? Yeah, that was the going away party. Oh. And so my friend Arzu, who I had, I guess like, Co Arzu, who was one of the founders of Yarn Bombing LA um, and who I just collaborated with so closely for years, she said, you know what? Carol showed up and she just kept showing up. And I was like, who is this person who kept showing up? (laughs) And so I think that's also another narrative about me or a narrative that I think about when it comes to life. Right. Just show up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just show up. Yeah. And eventually you'll get there. Yeah. Persistence. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, it's hard. I mean, I mean, I think that's sort of, it's hard to enter any community. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then 
but backtrack to being with Yarn Bombing LA. So yeah, I think we still live in a world where you feel very illegitimate without a master's degree. So I ended up at Otis in their master's of public practice yeah. for my MFA. Yeah. Yeah. How was that? Um, how was that? Better than Cornell? Oh, yeah. Okay. So let's see. I had a really good cohort. I still keep in touch with them. We had star faculty who were pretty much there on an adjunct basis. So the the challenge with that program is that its target student demographic is very niche, right? Yeah. Not everyone is pursuing a socially engaged MFA. Right. And because it's so niche, it's not able to have full-time faculty on a staff in a way that would build out a really robust program. Yeah. And so we had all of these amazing artists and mentors who were adjuncting through their program because of that particular structure. Yeah. But they, I, I had the freedom to meet so many amazing practitioners and cultural workers and people that I admire that, I mean, I met Rick Lowe through that and <laughs> that turned how'd into... You meet, how'd you meet Rick Lowe through that? Was he just, he gave a talk at Otis? No. So we had a field internship requirement. Okay. And so we would talk with Suzanne Lacey, who was the chair of the program, about what would be a good fit for us. And She's at U- USC now, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no comment. Yes. Um, so I told her, I said, you know, Suzanne, I understand how people can easily do social practice in LA. LA super left or not. I I mean, you know, but like LA is for the most part a progressive city. It's progressive. It's got the space to allow for things to happen. Right. It's a progressive city with a public culture um, and arts funding and arts institutions. And so I said, Suzanne, I understand how social practice would flourish in LA, but how does someone do it in Texas? Because that's where... I come from, you know, and that's one reason why I didn't move back there. And I said, you know, I want to know how Rick Lowe does it in Texas. Yeah. And so she calls him. Okay. That's good. Yes. Talk, talk, talk about like using your master's program to its full extent. She just calls him yeah. because Suzanne Lacey casually just has, you know, People's phone numbers. Oh, of course she does. Um, Why well, I, I wouldn't expect anything less. Yeah. So she calls him and she says, you know, he's actually working on a project in Dallas right now um, that maybe you can get involved in. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of my field internships. This was while you're in Otis or after? While I was in Otis. Okay. So I would go to Texas during my breaks, drive up or take the train up to Dallas and volunteer on the project. So that's an example of how I met Rick Lowe. But, you know, I also, my other field internship was with the LA Poverty Department and they were doing a retrospective at the Queens Museum at the time. And so I ended up going up to the Queens Museum to help them install. And so my handwriting was in the Queens Museum because, (laughs) yeah, I know, right? Woo! The Queens Museum (laughs) is really far. I yes. went. I went there recently to see the 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 oh shit uh, the woman who did the the trash shaking the hands of all the trash. Merle Laterman Eucalyptus. Yeah, I who only, I also met. 
But like, I remember going to the exhibition. I was like, oh my God, this is so far. Yeah, anyway, well, sorry. I was there early. Yeah. Um, every day for about a week. Were you living nearby or you were living? Um, I was staying with Bianca in Midtown. That's, that's like an hour and a half. Yes. Or more, depending yes. on the traffic. I was at the and- Queens Museum every day early for a week. And so they had created this timeline, but they needed someone with good handwriting to write. All the different moments in the the timeline. The Asian woman has a good handwriting. I actually have really terrible handwriting these days. No, but it was good. Like my my handwriting for the Queen's Museum was on point. (laughs) And so how, how, oh shit, I forgot her name. How was... Merle Laterman. Yeah, Mary Merle. Um, I think this is one thing I've noticed about artists, which is that they get famous for one thing. Mm. And then they're kind of faced with the choice of doing that one thing or being known for that one thing for the rest of their lives or trying to grow. So do you think it hung over her head or did she keep? I think so at that point, it's like I met Merle Laterman Eucalyptus decades after she had made her really iconic works about maintenance work. And she was working on a retrospective at the time. And so I think just her relationship to that body of work seemed and felt a little bit different. And I think that people do have the right to grow their practices, but we often live in a world or, you know, we live in this like sense of this like art historical method where that's not too possible. Right. It's like you think of Gerhard Richter and you think of one thing. Well, like five paintings. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you, you, you know what I'm talking about. You don't think about an evolution of the practice. Yeah. Yeah. What? This is the minimal shit talking post. No, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think. I'm just like wrapping my head around. Because there's, because like, um, yeah, everyone has like, I guess, a diff- different forces at work, right? Because mm-hmm. like. For Gary Richter, I think a lot of that also is like the market is driving it. Yeah. Right. Like, so you gotta like you know you gotta churn out to churn out paintings to probably to pay for your life, or if like you have an artist studio, you just gotta keep making work. Right. Right. Although I'm not sure for I don't know how Ukulele's work was how that funding worked that that pressured her to mm. go back to that because I, I as I understand that yeah. she. I don't She's think it's funding pressure. Model. I think it's just the way that you're known. I mean, mm. yeah, growing pains are hard, you know. Yeah. I think Cindy Sherman, in her work, is she just condemned to the self-portrait forever? Yeah, I don't right? know. Yeah. yeah. Although, although, but someone once, I mean, there's just different ways of working, right? Someone once said, you'll be surprised how far you can go by standing still, right? And if you mm-hmm. believe in that kind of philosophy of like standing still and just see where that takes you. Mm-hmm. That's a, a, diff- a different mindset than like constantly reinventing yourself. Yeah. You know? That is true. And then it gets difficult to tell if like, is that, are you saying so because you're lazy or you actually think there's something to be found? That's where it gets difficult. <sighs> that explains a lot. See, I'm that person. I can't stay still, but I'm trying <laughs> to learn how to stay still because I think there's value in that. I think I always get distracted by a new idea and then Mm -hmm. leave another idea before it actually comes to fruition. Yeah. Like in its fullest form. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, so you went to Rick's side project. Yes. And you, I guess, liked it enough to continue and take over, right? Um, 
was that handoff? How was that handoff? So translation was commissioned by the Nasher Sculpture Center in 2013 as part of its 10th anniversary. It was part of 10 commissions. Nasher's pretty big. Yeah. And they, none of the projects were really intended to last beyond a year because some of them were, you know, they were plastic art pieces. Yeah. Right. In a lot of ways, I don't think, I think we're starting to build understandings for practices like Rick's, um, like translations, but I think it's a very difficult practice to try to sustain and sincerely sustain as a museum entity. So after that initial year, you know, because other people, I think, made public sculptures, right, for the Nasher Exchange. Right, it was like you put the money in and then you're done, you leave. Yeah, but Rick devised a series of six pop-up markets, workshops in the community, Um, What was the goal of translation? So the goal of translation, it was located in this neighborhood that was a Section 8 neighborhood that had become designated for refugee resettlement. Um, And so it was a neighborhood of a lot of, I think, like different communities, community tensions, right? It was an incredibly high poverty neighborhood in Dallas. And so the idea was to have an asset-based approach to the neighborhood. So um, asset versus deficit-based means that, you know, instead of looking at a neighborhood and saying, oh, there's poverty, you know, there's crime, there's whatever, an asset-based approach says, let's look at this neighborhood and let's actually look at what it has to offer, Mm -hmm. right? Because actually it is such a culturally rich place with a lot of really, I think, like hardworking and creative people. And so the idea was to use culture and this asset-based framework to tell a different narrative of the neighborhood um, and to create a portrait of that neighborhood for, you know, people who weren't familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that was, through, that was through these public events. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so when that initial commission year came to a close, the people who had been activated by that project didn't want to see it go. Mm. And so they held a reflection session and someone was so moved that they established the means for an artist residency. Um, you mean the person who was moved had the means to yeah. establish Okay. And so like through cobbling together funds, they put together this artist residency and that was when I was um, graduating at the time, and because I had been working with the project, Rick asked if I would like to come on as a resident artist. Mm. Um, And so that actually was also only supposed to last for a year, but, you know, it's always about funding, right? In a very, I think, cynical, in a very cynical way, it is about funding. But, you know, there's, there was enough to like cobble together funding for a second year, and I really think that if there had been a sustained or continued fundraising effort, that, you know, translation would probably still be operating today. Mm. But fundraising is hard, and they don't teach you that in art school. They don't and teach you anything about the real world <laughs> in art school, actually. And like. sometimes, <laughs> as an artist, you need to figure out if that's going to be your art, fundraising. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so when you took over, did the project change? Was it a continuation? What did you learn from that project? Mm, Well, big questions. 
Um, you can answer them in any way you want. I think the project changed. So we moved away from the markets. And the reason is because it was very difficult to do a market for craft. Mm-hmm. At some point, people just don't want to buy earrings anymore, you know, or they look at a crocheted sweater and they're thinking, why do I have to pay $50 for this like piece of handicraft when I can just pay $8 for it at Amazon? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there's like a couple of, so there are the politics and the economics of craft that made the craft market unsustainable. But so we pivoted to a food, Mm. like training food vendors because, Um, one of the women that I had worked with, she had said to me, I think the second day that I met her, my friend wants to sell falafel. How can she sell falafel? And so we mm. just took that question and figured out how to sell falafel. Yeah, yeah. And so I think when I was artist in residence, it was much more of a like, yeah, it was much more of an education space. And it was looking at arts and culture education as a form of community organizing and community development. Mm -hmm. And so basically, how does like employing people as educators economically affect the neighborhood? How does it affect people's ability to think of themselves as people with expertise instead of, you know, people who are at the bottom of a social hierarchy? Right. And how do these classes that they teach, how are they ways to organize groups of people. So I would say that was the primary shift. Mm. How's Dallas? <laughs> we can skip that question if you want. How, how was Dallas? I've never um, I've never been, so. Yeah, it's really interesting for me having I think moved around in different cities and different art communities and kind of trying to figure out what are the factors that enable or do not enable certain art practices Mm -hmm. to flourish, right? And I think it's a little bit more complex than just, is this city progressive or conservative? Does it have a market? Right. Um, Does it have an art market? Because, for example, Dallas was a market-driven city. Philadelphia does not have an art market whatsoever. There's a ton of artists there. Yeah, right? And so I think that makes the type of work that people like support or yeah, the existence of a market really affects the type of work that is produced. I think the existence of public funding and private funding also affects the sustainability of an art space. And I think that there's something just about a history of place that also can either empower or be disempowering. And so the example that I might use for this is that I mean, L.A. has done a lot of initiatives about its own art history, right? Pacific Standard Time being a huge initiative. But I would argue that L.A. loves to write its own self-mythology and include... It's a city about mythology. Yeah, but, you know, like John Baldessari is part of the L.A. mythology, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can look at different types of art being produced in L.A. and say, boom, that's the legacy. Michael Asher... Yeah. Right, Calarts. That's the legacy of John Baldessari, right? It has like a very self-reflexive discourse. But on the organizing side, like California also has this amazing like history of people of color organizing. There's the Black Panther Party in Oakland. There's Asian American organizing in the 60s. There's the farm worker movement, right? And so mm-hmm. there's these like amazing 
organizing histories that I think really ground the way people understand self and community. And so for me, I think that those histories can get a little bit lost. I mean, to be quite honest, I've never been anywhere except California that had such a self-secure, self-assured sense of history. Really? Yeah. Huh, I think Philadelphia that's... also has an interrupted sense of history. You know, and well, what causes what causes the interrupted sense of self-history, you think? It's actually the lack of continuity, right? It's the lack of like passing the knowledge mm. or the work down yeah. from generation to generation. And so basically in Dallas, what you would see is you could understand that there were people from previous generations yeah. who had done like the difficult work of existing in a really racist and oppressive environment, but they weren't allowed to like pass on their knowledge, mm. right? Or to like physically kind of like pass on to their communities. Right. And one of my big mentors was someone who was from a like previous generation who I think like just did so much mentorship of people like me in Dallas, which was so important. And in Philadelphia, the part that's discontinuous is the move bombing, right? The move bombing? Um, so that was when the city government, or actually don't quote me on that. I'm like the government, but I don't remember what level. Yeah. Um, but that was when the government bombed a black liberationist community in Philadelphia. Like at the CIA or something, FBI? Yeah. Okay. And I think this was in either the 60s or the 70s, once again, oh, getting all my facts wrong. Um, well, but we'll look it up and I'll post the yeah. link on the show notes. Great. Thank you. But, you know, the move bombing interrupted the racial consciousness and the building of a racial liberation struggle in Philadelphia to the point where it's still there's like huge racial inequality, but there's not really a strong racial like liberation yeah. movement because of like what happened because right. people literally got bombed right. for doing that. Yeah. yeah. So I think maybe that's also interesting to talk about as we're in Berlin, right? And thinking about like memory and continuity yeah. and just what is the role of that yeah. um, and how do we see that play out on a social level? Um, because I've definitely seen that play out in the different places that in the different contexts that I've lived. Yeah. It could also be that you, like you, I think, I don't know, I'm, I have no idea if this, what I'm about to say is like historically correct or if, if it's true, but it could be just, when I think of New York, I don't think of uninterrupted history. That's true. New York does. Uh, I just don't like New York. No, I know. Don't Sh cut that. <laughs> Put it in the podcast. Chica Chicago. I think <laughs> yeah. Berlin. I think these are cities where also people want to stay. Mm. And it could be that a city like Philadelphia, Boston, although, yeah, I'm not sure much Boston, Dallas. Texas, like those are places where the people who have the power to change probably also have the means to go somewhere else. Mm. And then the people who can't leave are, are left there. And those are people who don't have the connections, the privilege, the um, um, I mean, but education to pr push that forward in the way that the other cities are but drawing this is my people in. Maybe. Yes. And because I definitely. I'm admittedly part of the Dallas exodus and I have seen my friends leave Dallas and I do think there's that issue of brain drain, but, and I can see rightfully so why people who stay behind 
can feel burned by that. But at the same time, when I was in Dallas, it was just, I think, a known fact that you could not grow as an artist and you could not grow in your career unless you left. Mm -hmm. That was just a known fact that there weren't these opportunities that existed for you or that you were in an environment that wouldn't nurture what you wanted to do. Yeah. And so, for example... But it has to start somewhere, right? LA yeah. didn't LA didn't start that way. No, that's Chicago true. didn't start that way. Berlin didn't start that way. It, there needs to be like a shock or like a um, either governmental or urban planning or just maybe a migration that happened that would force a large enough number of people to move there to then make it relevant, right? So like, this for instance, this is my yes and though this so? is my yes and I'm like it is so repressive there Mm. you literally do not thrive as a human being Mm. and so i don't think any number of people being there is going to help it thrive it is going to help it be a less hostile place and i think that has to do with a sort of macro politics you know Mm -hmm. like i said Politics aren't everything in the way that a city is shaped, but I think the macro politics make it so difficult if you are not part of a middle class white Christian, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, community. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I I mean, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. So it's like, yeah, if a bunch of people moved there and then changed some policy, then maybe we could get somewhere. But if a bunch of people moving there, just moving there, that's not going to do anything. Yeah. Well, but if enough do, then they do start change policy, right? (sighs) Yeah, yes and, yes and, yes and. This is the conversation about white liberals. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm like, are they invested in changing policy? Um, But yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then from there, how'd you make the move to Philadelphia? So I had met the founding executive director of Asian Arts Initiative in early 2017 at a gathering at the Ford Foundation, and we had just kept in touch. And this job came up, and she reached out. And I think at that point, a couple of things were happening in my life. One was the aforementioned, I think Dallas is an incredibly hostile context to exist in and to try to do the type of work that I was doing. And I also felt, and I'm feeling ambivalent about this now, but at the time I was aware of the fact that I was an East Asian person with a master's degree who was working in a neighborhood that was African-American, that was Latinx, Um, And that had refugees from North Africa, Middle East, and Southeast Asia. And so in other words, it's not like I was a white savior, but I was socioeconomically positioned in a very different place. And I fundamentally... You're anti-Asian. Yeah. And so fundamentally, I don't believe in having that type of power dynamic. Yeah. Right? And I think what we would tell white saviors who go into these communities is we would say, you know what, like go back and fix and clean up your own community. Yeah. And so that is how 
I saw this opportunity with Asian Arts Initiative. Hmm. I saw it as an opportunity, and it was a programming opportunity. So I saw it as an opportunity to step away from artists as fundraiser, to be in a place that didn't, I think, wreck my mental health, um, <laughs> and to do that work within my own community yeah. instead of being in this like problematic you know, power position yeah. that I was in. Yeah. Ask me a year later how I feel about doing that work in my own community. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you like, yeah. do you like Philadelphia? I like Philadelphia. Um, I also will acknowledge that I don't culturally identify with Philadelphia. And so that is something that I have been deeply thinking about because, um, what do you have to be to be culturally related or identify with Philadelphia? You have to like pretzels and hoagies, like, and Wawa. <laughs> like the most reductive, reductive image of a Philadelphian person. <laughs> um, so, so I, I think in this past year have just realized that I grew up, I've lived in three of the four states on the U.S.-Mexico border. Three. Yeah, so my family lived in Arizona for two years as okay. well. So I've lived in Arizona, Texas, California. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like border politics are very like, important very and present real. and real. This sort of like cultural hybridization that happens is very real. You know, I think Texas is arguably on the edge of the South, but I think... It's his you own know, thing, right? Yeah, it's his own thing. But you also understand the legacy of slavery yeah. in a very different way as well. And so, for example, it's like I don't, I don't understand the racial history of Philadelphia. I don't understand it mm. from a lived bodily yeah. perspective. You know, I can yeah. read about it. I can intellectualize about it. I can observe. But I fundamentally don't understand it in that deep way that I do. Because um, you've spent so much time in L.A. Yeah, that I do Texas when it comes to, you know, the U.S.-Mexico border. And so that is some... And also, I mean, in L.A., there's also that idea that you're facing the Pacific Rim, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's also a lot of Asian diaspora in L.A. So it's just, I feel... This is so weird because I am finally working in an institution that is like my own ethnic category right like yeah. i'm finally working in an asian american institution yeah and i feel so racially out of place yeah. in philadelphia well i mean that's also just i think we always forget the subtleties of just different groups you know just like the idea that no culture or race is a monolith mm -hmm. you know like yeah. I, I felt like that when i first went to cornell because i was like oh like i'm finally seeing all these like um, asians arguably mostly chinese um, students and I was like I kind of fit in but also like my social cues were all off because mm. I was from New Hampshire like I didn't like I said like I was one of three I don't even know a number but like you know yeah. you could count on the number on your hand like how many Asians there were so it's like I there you know there were like Asians from um, Texas with like a huge Asian community Asians from LA with a huge Asian community Asians from mm -hmm. New York and they each had like you know a social way of working that I wasn't familiar with that yeah. took me like, I think two years to sort of understand, you know? Yeah. I actually, my aha moment happened on the UCLA campus because I worked at UCLA mm -hmm. briefly. And so, because 
I had only up until that point had models for Asian Americans that were quite frankly, nerdy. Um, like who? Who are your models? <laughs> no, but you know what I'm talking about, right? I had only been around Asian Americans that aspire to middle or upper middle class living um, yeah. through investment banking. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hotel. And Hotel. medicine yeah. and all of that. And so it wasn't until I got on the UCLA campus where I just thought, oh my God, there are punk Asians. Yeah. There are Asians studying sociology. Yeah. There are musician Asians. There are like, Asian actors, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> there was just a whole different world of Asian possibility yeah. opened up. And so I think that's also why I romanticize LA a lot. I know it's not perfect. I know, you know, it's highly idealized in my mind, but I yeah. think that was where I first felt comfortable with articulating and claiming the notion of race. Your own race. Yes. Mm. But also like, to, I think to like claim racial, to like talk about or articulate racial politics, you have to like articulate that you are of like a certain race. Yeah. Right. And so I really, I don't think I could have articulated that I was Asian American because I was like, I'm not you didn't know what doctor. that was. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. be a doctor. Yeah. You know, I totally disidentify with this. That's that's. I like the idea. Yeah. I'm trying to think when I identified. I think it was like when I had to finally write an artist statement. Oh. In well, I think I wrote that when I was in undergrad, but I don't think I seriously thought about it until in grad school. Mm-hmm. Or maybe my my essay to grad school. I forget. I think I always identified with being an immigrant. I even I don't think I thought about it. I think I yeah. think I or like I, I I thought about it, but I couldn't put it into words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Or I think, and maybe this is the sort of like farce of contemporary art, right? I think there's many farces. <laughs> <laughs> there's some. The whole thing is a farce. The whole thing's a farce. Um, but I think I was able to articulate feelings of displacement mm-hmm. um, and migration in very lofty, abstract, mm-hmm. conceptual terms, yeah. right? So I was able to, like, in a sense, deracinate, yeah. um, remove the idea of race mm-hmm. from these, like, abstract concepts because that's what you're taught to do. You're taught to make abstract concepts. You're taught not to make very literal or direct or, you know, self-narrative yeah. work. And so that's also, I think, been part of a growing that I'm still trying to figure out because I don't, I'm always trying to figure out how much of myself I insert into my work or like needs to be inserted, Yeah, you know? So I think I'm still trying to figure that out. But definitely I think the training that you get to just turn everything into an abstract concept that doesn't let you talk about people's lived experiences. Yeah, no, I would agree. And also I think... I mean, another farce is like the idea of the audience, right? Mm-hmm. Like who's your oh, audience? Yeah. But it's like the audience, the audience is that critic that is going to give you a good review. The audience is the curator is going to put you in the show. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so because of that, you just have to like dumb down your shit or exotify it mm-hmm. so much so that that right. person who doesn't understand the politics, except in an abstract sense, would be, oh my God, that's so wonderful. And to be honest, I don't find that there is a particular audience for Asian American diaspora that really understands the politics of what's going on. Because I think like 
I think the Umbrella Revolution is complicated. I think Ai Weiwei is complicated. Was the Umbrella Revolution? So that was the democratic, the protests for democratic elections in Hong Kong um, okay. in 2014. Actually, was no, that the first one? Was that the first time that they started protesting? I think so. Yeah. yeah, because that was when, like Hong Kong, I think had been able to hold their own elections. Yeah, and then separately. they started. They started yeah. like inserting things and and then china mainland was going to integrate it's like i think it's hard to have audience when in the united states we receive things through about the east through a filter yeah right orientalism like we were talking about yeah so it's hard to have an audience because you need to decide how much am i going to play to that like if I play to that filter, someone will hear me. Yeah. If I don't play to that filter, like, yeah, who's going to be able to understand yeah. what I have to say? Because it's a diaspora community, so it's also not something the Chinese government wants to hear, quite frankly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I think, and I, th- I don't know. I mean, it could be also like we're talking about like the apathy of a lot of Asian Americans in politics I think it's also like people also themselves don't know what it truly is to be Asian American. Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. I think, I mean, there's going to be reductive in any way I put it, but it's just like, I think like, you know, when I think of like the Black Lives Matter, they all, a lot of the, that movement are people who come from a sort of similar background. Whereas mm-hmm. the Asian American community is like, that is like oh. half of the world coming in at different points in time with different levels of privilege, some who yeah. don't even see themselves as mm-hmm. like one thing or the other. Whereas like the Black Lives Matter, like those, this that's a history that's been stripped away from Africa. So whether, even though there are differences, they don't know what that is. And now they're right. there, but the Asian Americans like, or I would argue that maybe it's about responding to a specific historical trauma. Right. 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 And that historical trauma is slavery, slavery, which like all black folk in the United States share and i will say that yeah asian america has so many different separate conflicting historical traumas yeah you know it's like your country caused my country's historical trauma yeah and then are you first generation or are you second generation yeah do you speak the language right right? like yeah there's a language barrier there's a generational barrier there's an immigrant Mm -hmm. there's immigrant like barrier yeah absolutely and i think something else that i've been trying to like think through because i'm always think i think i think a lot about like social issues but i think through the poetics of those issues right um so like one poetics that i'm working out is what it means to politically need to pay attention to two different places right because i think that when you're an immigrant generation you pay attention to your home country politics Mm -hmm. and it's hard for you to pay attention to like the politics of your current country. And the thing is, it's like hard enough to pay attention to one politic. Yeah. Right. Like it truly is to be an informed citizen. It's impossible. Yeah. Actually. It's like, it's difficult. It takes work to be an informed citizen about one fucking place. So to be informed or like, or even, even if you try to be informed about the place, sometimes the complexity of it is beyond your means. Like I think on the recent, like, um, Pittsburgh ballot, one was like, it's like taking a few extra percentage points off 
people who own land to help fund, like I think it was charter schools or schools. And it was like, I don't know the economics for like how much that percentage point actually means for people mm-hmm. owning land. Like I literally just got a line and I was like, it sounds good. I think that's would, a no. What's up? No to charter schools. Yeah, to public know, I, education. I don't, I don't know. I don't know those charter schools, but it was like <laughs> okay. it was siphoning money from landowners to fund, I think, education. Okay, and yeah, to public education. I don't, but I, don't, like, yeah. but I don't know like what the education is. <laughs> yeah, and like to to yeah. So and I did some Google research and it was like I found both sides of the argument from two different websites, and I don't know what those sources are. Mm-hmm. And you start getting down a rabbit hole of like, this is um, complicated. And this is like me as someone who speaks mm. English with internet access and the time to even look it up. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I 100% agree with that. And so I understand political disenfranchisement, you know, or I understand what are the factors that produce it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How much more time do we have? We have mm, 20 minutes, but we could stop. Okay. I mean, do, you have no, anything, no, no. do you have anything else you want to add? Um, Future plans? No, I just have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> oh, okay. No, 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 no. But we, we can talk for like 15 more. I mean, I can hold it for 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you can go. No, no, no. That's fine. This is a good conversation. Right. We'll leave yeah. this. We'll leave this in. This is how much Carol wants to say. <laughs> what, 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 do you, what do you need to say? What, what do you need to say that to... I don't know. I thought you had more questions. Oh, I mean, we could keep talking. We're going to talk about color or IDK, IDK, IDK. Yeah, I don't know. We could talk about art. We could do more art, art shit talking. Uh, oh. You didn't talk about Michelada Think Tank. Um, do you have future plans? Any, um, one, oh, one thing I'm curious about. I was looking you up while you were meeting your friend from three to six and I saw your performance piece. Uh, Exercises for the Invisible Enemy. It had like zero views, zero likes. <laughs> so he um, clearly didn't like advertise it. But I was like, I was like, oh my God, Carol's doing performance art thingy with like a narrative, which as I explained to you, I love narratives. Okay. I love, I love, hmm. I like storytelling. I like, I think it's like a good way to talk about issues that can be not didactic, hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that was the culmination of my fellowship at Project Row Houses. I had spent a year researching the relationship between art and gentrification Mm -hmm. in different seven different U.S. cities. And I had developed this performative lecture where I did Tai Chi to a track of talking about how to yeah, it's called exercises for the invisible enemy, right? So talking about the politics of like visibility and then also invisibility and just how we prepare for that. And and you wrote that essay? Yes. Okay. And I wrote the text for that after, um, you know, like months of research, months of Tai Chi education. Um, <laughs> I like that piece because that's a piece I would make. <laughs> oh, really? Like not exactly, but like I when I saw it, I was like, this is something I would do. Like oh. <laughs> I would I would do I would write a narrative, I'd do a re- weird like performance and then I'd like force the two on top of each other. Right? Yeah. And then of course I was like, you know, like yeah, what because the question actually came up in the crowd because there was an Asian American poet who was based in Houston who said, like, are you self-orientalizing? Like, how are you presenting yourself to an audience? 
And Ooh, that's a good word, self-orientalizing. Yeah. And I think I gave probably a similar answer, which is that, yeah, it's very difficult for me to exist outside of the Western gaze, you know, but this is me kind of like dealing with some of the contradictions of that. And so I think I had come to this point in, and I also developed a publication, which I sent to you that mapped all of capitalism is stolen land Mm -hmm, um, that mapped out some of these dynamics of arts-based gentrification that I was seeing. But ultimately it was a commentary on some things that I had been thinking about recently and still think about, which is that I think we live in a world where as activists, quote unquote activists, we put shit up on Facebook. Like we put up pictures of ourselves with protest signs. Yeah. Um, you know, we put up information of about ourselves, which honestly just makes it easier for the FBI to track and yeah. dox you. Right. Um, and so in this age of, performativity being connected to activism. And I think that there are some ways that social media can be used for activism in very effective ways. Right. But I think there are also some ways in which it's led to like a performative dimension of activism. Yeah. I felt like I had such meaningful interactions with activists and artists through my fellowship, but that I wasn't comfortable saying, putting that on display, right? I wasn't comfortable being like... Oh, like writing a blog post or, yeah. or a Facebook update. like Right, oh. I, or, or just like any type, the way that we're conditioned to like display things yeah. as art, I think I was questioning. I yeah. still question that a lot because, you know, like I'm not going to tell you, tell the public what strategy a certain housing, you know, like affordable housing advocates are using, you know, like that's just not stuff that you should broadcast to the world. And I think that maybe we need to have a sense of like secrecy and opacity and invisibility when it comes to the types of social changes Mm -hmm. that we want to affect in the world. And so instead of being like, this is me and I'm going to verbally diarrhea about, um, an issue, you know, like an issue, right? It was more about, well, how do we think actually about the poetics of opacity and Tai Chi as, um, Carol's doing Tai Chi movements right now. Yeah. (laughs) And Tai Chi as a practice of like energy manipulation, but literally these movements are about how you like push and grapple with someone who's invisible, right? It's about doing practicing mm. the movements so that when you encounter someone in the moment, then you can actually like just use muscle memory mm. to kick their ass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's my explanation of that piece, but that is something that I think about because I think a premise of like art as activism and socially engaged art relies on visibility politics and yeah. I just like and redu- often reductive in reductive ways. Yeah, and I just I don't believe in visibility politics mm. anymore. And I think maybe like that's what I've been sitting with and struggling with for a year. So if you asked me what I was working on, I would probably say nothing cuz <laughs> Do you still post on Facebook about like I remember at yeah. least I think a few years ago you you would po- you do you would post a lot of political stuff and mm-hmm. you'd have these like long cha- like Facebook message changes and I was like God you have so much patience and also like 
yeah, patients to write something about some about response to someone who you don't know what their politics are and like what their assumptions they're making. And I see these like long discussions. Yes, I used to use Facebook as a pedagogical tool. Yeah. It got me in trouble with the powers that be in Dallas, Texas. Oh, did? Oh, yeah. Okay. And so I think now I just write stupid coded things on Facebook. Mm. Mainly I write about astrology. Oh, but okay. <laughs> but astro but like sending secret politically coded messages through yeah. astrology. You know, so yeah. that's what I mean, right? Yeah. Is like maybe we need to learn a form of opacity. Maybe we need mm. to learn a form of like talking in code, kind of like when we were talking about you know, how in China there's a way of asking a question and having it signify two ways. So yeah, that you can which know, blows my mind. Yeah, so that you can know if someone's a friend or an enemy. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I've become a little, I've tr honestly, like, I think I'm generally like a verbal and emotional diarrhea person, so I don't think this works, but I think I've tried to be a little bit more opaque mm. or to just understand what that means. Yeah. I've started, I've largely stopped posting on Facebook. I just feel like I'm talking into like uselessness, mm. you know, like, yeah. I mean, the election showed that like everything's sort of targeting. And I was like, I'm not, I couldn't see a purpose for it other than self-gratitude. Yeah. Right. Like, like you don't need people to know a lot of the stuff you're acting whatever like deep thought you're thinking is so reductive that it actually is meaningless. And it's also only reaching people whose politics follow you and align with yours anyway. I mean, I think my pedagogical platform worked when I was using it. That way. I don't know. You, you, <laughs> you reached a lot of interesting people, but I'll, yeah, but I'm, I'm just saying for myself, it could also be just the social environment that you're working in as, maybe introduce you to different people. But I yeah. felt like I was just shouting into like the same void mm. over and over again. You oh, know? Yeah. I mean, now, now I just write stupid things. Now I am very pro stupid things on social media as a smoke screen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish we had more time to talk. Uh, is there anything less, any last things that you want to say? Anything that I missed over? Um, I don't think so. Wait, why, why do you wish we had more time to talk? What would you ask if we did? I think just shit talking. Yeah, um, this is a non shit talking podcast. Yeah. No, yeah. not shit talk, but just like letting our minds go. I mean, it's just yeah. sort of. I mean, that's. I mean, that's sort of what I like about podcasts. Is sort of, it's um, all the po the podcasts that I really like where they invite guests. It I find that I don't care who the guests are, like in terms mm. of fame or what they've done. It's more about the discussion that happens between the guest and the host. And how that reveals something about how they think about the world. Yeah. You know, and so like, kind of like how you said our entire, this entire trip where we're just chatting in the, you know, the train, the tram, the museums, the restaurants is like, there was a podcast because we were just sort of like in real time, sort of trying to figure out different things, express our thoughts about the world in different ways that is revealing in itself. Yeah. No, that's true. I can see that. All right. So, yeah. We, but no, we'll yeah. wander another time. Yeah, we'll wander another time. Carol, Carol part two. Yes. Maybe I'll shit talk then. Just kidding. Where can we people find you and your shit talk? 
and your verbal diarrhea and no, your uh, secret and your, and your secretive. Nowhere. <laughs> <Okay>. It's all secret. <laughs> <laughs> it's all secret. I'm not real. I don't exist. Um, yeah. You don't have to. Should I not put your Should I not put your info out? Um, you can put my Facebook and Instagram. That's okay. fine. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. <laughs> I'm for- like that's where I am right now. I'm no longer one of those artists who's like. I would give anything for people to know who I am. Like, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, I don't know. That maybe people speaks. That speaks to, I guess, the um, the lack of ego in relationship to how you, and maybe why you have a complicated relationship with like socially engaged art. Yeah. Right. Because like most socially engaged artists have like a big ego. And Do they? You don't think how so? How are you getting this information? Is this empirical? Based on the people I've met. Oh, okay. All right. You don't think so? I don't know. I, I just think that's an interesting conclusion, um, but maybe we'll have to talk offline about okay. that. All right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think singular authorship is problematic. That's, yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. You know. And I mean, I did go to like open engagement and I saw a lot of artists all in that, what I see as like a, just a stroking of this ego. Yeah. Well, Obviously, open engagement isn't a representative of all social engaged art, but that with like the other types of artists or famous artists that I know. But who it's are in what that. it's like a condition of the art world to exist, though. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so, yeah, maybe I'm just maybe this is me kind of borrowing a line from Afro pessimism or whatever. But I'm just like I'm not into these conditions for existing. Mm. Um, so yeah. yeah. I guess that would be a depressive <laughs> line to end on. Bye. Thanks, thanks, Carol. Thank you. All right, go pee. Thank you. <laughs> Priorities. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.